And just like that, our election has entered its most crucial stage. I'm not talking about the filing of the candidates' list with the Central Election Commission last Thursday night. I'm talking, of course, about last night's opening of a new series of Eretz Ned Derrick, Israel's most popular. And let's face it, Israel's only political satire show. Back on our screens, just in time for the election. I'm Anshul Pfeffer, and we're Haaretz's Election Overdose, recording on September the 22nd, episode 11, 40 days to E-Day. And with me, as ever, is Dr. Dalia Schoenlin. What did you think of last night's Eretz Neder Dalia? Are you humming Mel Brooks this morning? Well, I have to say that I didn't listen to the whole, I didn't watch the whole episode. What I watched was the spoof on the spoof. It was a spoof in which Itamar Ben-Gvir plays the starring role in The Producers, which, of course, was a spoof on Hitler. So everybody's talking about it this morning because it's got Itamar Ben-Gvir in the role of Hitler in a satire show. And this is controversial, but it was funny. Well, actually, many Israelis didn't even don't have your encyclopedic knowledge of uh, musicals. And I think even Ben-Gvir himself, who gave a tiny uh, uh, sort of... Well, a dismissive uh, uh, response on Twitter last night. I don't think he realized that he was being sent up as uh, a springtime for Bengvir in Israel. But he, I wonder if he actually listened to the words of the parody, because the words were pretty biting. They accused him of being buddy-buddy with Yigal Amir, the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin, and the killers of the Dawabsha family who set their house on fire. I mean, it accused him of all sorts of terrible things, which are basically sort of true. And I just wonder how closely he was listening. Well, I laughed when I saw it, and it was written and choreographed brilliantly. I have it to was say. choreographed really brilliantly. At the same time, the same time as I was laughing, I couldn't help asking myself that if this was a politician and a party who realistically could very soon be a major part of the next Israeli government, then perhaps the joke is on us. It's not a joke in that case, especially if he gets his wish and becomes minister of justice. Comedy and humor, not necessarily always about good things. And now for the real satire, what's still passing for an election campaign. Now, last week we recorded on Thursday morning, about 12 hours before the deadline for filing candidate lists. And naive and innocent as we are, we assumed by then that everything had been settled and there would be no further surprises. And of course, as the bell of Big Ben, well, sorry, that's another story I was covering last week. And of course, as the Knesset clocks reached 10 p.m., there was still one more drama unfolding. And that was the disintegration of what remained of the joint list. Now, for any listeners who haven't been following the news of the last week, and all they know is from our episode, uh, we were overtaken by events. And though our, by, uh, our Blythe predictions were that the three remaining Arab parties would be running together once again, it turned out that it was not to be. We'll get on to that momentarily with our special guest today. But first, what else has been happening this week, Dahlia? Well, I've been watching another deadline, which is this evening again. It's not quite as important, but it's the attempt of various parties to disqualify other parties. They have until tonight to appeal or to, to request the disqualification of those parties or individuals from the Central Election Committee by this evening. Why is it not really a hard and fast deadline? Because the Central Election Committee is essentially a political body that may decide in favor of one of these requests to disqualify a party or person, but then it goes to the Supreme Court. Now, to explain who is 
un, in, uh, in the crosshairs of the parties that, and people who are trying to request disqualifications, this is what we really need to know, there has been speculation that Likud would like to disqualify Balad, but that they won't do it for tactical or strategic reasons. They, there was speculation that Ishatid might try to disqualify Balad. Why would they do that? Well, maybe because they want to see all the Arab voters flocking to the other parties to make sure they cross the threshold. And there's all sorts of intrigue. Likud has said it won't accept this disqualification if it, unless it includes all the Arab parties. So there's lots of politics going on here. Meretz is also seeking disqualifications. They are trying to have Amichai Shikli and Edith Silman disqualified. Those, of course, are the two people who defected at different points from Yamina and have now tried to join Likud uh, through the uh, selection process by which the head of the party allows them to join on his own terms, not through the primary system. They have been part of Likud. The Meretz is trying to challenge that on technical grounds. And both of the grounds for these potential disqualifications are based on laws that were responses to different periods of Israeli history. So we won't get into that now. But it will be interesting to find out what the Supreme Court decides, because ultimately, when the politicians don't like what the Supreme Court decides, they will beat up on the court. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, usually the court decides not to disqualify. There have been a number of cases in which, notably Kahana and a couple of Arabists and some other former members of Kahana's party. But by and large, I think the Supreme Court in recent election cycles is seeming more and more reluctant to intervene. In general, I think it's a good thing. I don't think the Supreme Court should be disqualifying parties as despicable as some of them are. What do you think is important going on this week, Angel? Well, this is sort of a transitional period where we ended the the you know the the sort of the run up with all the uh, lists kind of splitting and merging and so on and and, and uh, doing their primaries and we're we're out of that stage of the, of the election, but because we're on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, because it's been a long summer, because I think the parties are, many of the parties have kind of decided that the real money time will be the last two or three weeks. There's not that much happening, I think. I think actually, some of the parties. Uh, so you really that, have nothing to talk about, is what you're saying? No, I just I think we're a lot of things to talk about, and we well, tell we'll, me what they we'll, are. We'll, we'll in a moment, but I just want the observation I'm trying to make here is that. The parties that attracted the most attention this week seem to be parties which won't even cross the electoral threshold. So we had Ayelet Shaked, uh, who is now finally the leader of uh, Habayit Yudi, Jewish Home, after swapping so many parties in just the last few months, uh, delivering this heartfelt apology. I'm so sorry for joining this government. I'm so she actually said for breaking the hearts of my followers. And she begged for forgiveness. And she begged for forgiveness. She didn't explain though why despite having broken the hearts of, of, of her followers and, and asking them forgiveness, she's still staying in that terrible government as interior minister. And those of, uh, and since we're in Elul, uh, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, those of us who know the, the rules of Tshuva, know that the first rule of Tshuva is you first of all have to leave the sin. So Ayelet Shaked is apologizing, but she's, she's clinging very hard to original sin. Uh, another party which is unlikely to cross the threshold in the polls, uh, how do we call them? Tsirim Borim, Burning Youngsters? Youngsters on Fire. Youngsters on Fire. Uh, youngsters on Fire leader Hadar Mukhtar, uh, who is not going to cross the threshold according to the polls, at According least. to the polls? But the polls are giving a picture we'll, of today. We'll, they don't we'll say what's going to happen. in the moment as well. Right. However, Hadar Mukhtar is uh, very good at one thing, that's making headlines in a rather dry 
and barren election season. And Hadar Mukhtar's biggest uh, claim is that as a young Israeli, she will never be able to buy her own home. She will never own a home. She'll always have to pay uh, crippling rent. And lo and behold, this week it was discovered that Hadar Mukhtar, 20-year-old, at the age of 20, already has her own apartment in Haifa. But she did say in her defense that to get that apartment, her father had to spend his pension money. And she said, you know, I don't want to live in a situation where my dad has to spend all of his pension money to buy me an apartment. And she's quite right. However, she has been spending the last few weeks and months saying, I will never own my own flat. And she already does. So... It's a bit. The, what was interesting about that revelation is it came from a very far right. Uh, how do we call the shadow Hatzel? Um, That's his nickname. Some, he's a rapper. He's well. He hasn't put out some any decent music for years. Is he known for anything else other than being a political provocateur? Yes, but he was the one who uh, somehow received the information. Somehow? About, do you think it's really somehow? Don't so, you think there are so people think working very hard no, to uncover I, these things? I think they're very hard, and I think it's interesting that it's coming now from the right because originally. Most most people assumed that Hadar Mukhtar was somehow Hadar Mukhtar and youngsters on fire was somehow a right wing front party to try and take votes away, which may have gone to the left, and to kind of waste left wing votes. And I think that someone has seen focus groups or polling showing that actually she may be damaging the right right now, and that's why they're out to get her. It's true that I did see, I did talk to somebody this week, just a regular voter, who said he is generally an all-out Netanyahu supporter and a Likud supporter, but then he said this election, he desperately wants to vote for Yaron Zalicha's economy party. And he said, I just really want him to get in. So it could be that the right is worried about leaking votes to people focusing on, on economic issues. And as we know, Netanyahu is a full court press kind of player, and he doesn't want to lose even one vote. Um... A party which will cross the threshold and is quite important, the party led by uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid, has also been quite quiet recently, but Yair Lapid is making headlines this week. He's got his big speech at the United Nations General Assembly in New York, a speech which was heavily trailed by Lapid's people yesterday as one way he will support the two-state solution. Now, we all know that the UNGA may be the world's most prominent diplomatic stage, but actually leaders speaking there are not really speaking to the world, they're speaking to the folk back home. So is Lapid's UN address basically an election speech, Dalia? And if so, what is he trying to achieve by bringing up the two-state solution, which, let's face it, has kind of disappeared from Israeli political discourse in recent years? Well, I think it's an interesting move. I mean, it seems to have disappeared from the map, but as I have argued right here in the pages of Haaretz, I think the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict still is essentially the defining line between left, right, and center in Israel. And that is primarily about attitudes towards the two-state solution and settlements. So it's as if he's giving some sort of a, throwing some sort of a bone to the left. Uh, maybe he's trying to make sure that no voters, you know, slide away back to Labor Party. But it also could be a clever move to make himself look just, you know, half a degree or a degree further to the left, which by contrast makes Gantz and Sa'ar's party, National Unity, look just a teeny little bit more right-wing. And of course, in Israel, elections speak dynamics, the only way to legitimize National Unity Party is for the for those middle right, those coveted middle right voters is to try to make them look a little more right wing. So maybe he's super clever. I kind of doubt it. I think he's trying to say something that actually does satisfy the global stage and probably he's trying to pull votes back from the Labor Party and anybody on the left. I think he wants to consolidate as much as possible. And he, too, apparently is fighting for every vote. Maybe it's even more sophisticated than that, and he Don't wants too much credit to be seen as if he, as if he's actually really is talking to the world and not doing any electioneering. 
while doing all those things you mentioned before. Anyway, just before we get to our guest, a quick word on the state of play in the polls. I know this is your favorite period in the election, Dahlia. Since finally the polls are about actual lists running in the election and not the ones we just assume we'll be running. Yeah, I mean, we really are looking so hard in every dark corner of the numbers to find something interesting going on. And they're still just remarkably stable, which is why we ended up talking about these parties that aren't even crossing the threshold because there's practically no movement among the ones who are, even after the list closed. But there are some teeny tiny little shifts that we should keep our eyes on in case they reflect a trend. The first is that Ever since the elections were called, right up until the 15th, the average of all polls showed Netanyahu's block of supporters getting 59 seats, maybe 59.2 or 3 or 4, depending on how you count them. But in the five polls that were published since, he's now getting an average of 60 seats. So still, it's not 61. Still, it's not going to change the dynamic. Still, it might go back down or back up, but it's a teeny little movement, so we should keep our eyes on it. One poll had Bibi with an outright majority of 62 seats. You'll never guess who that would be. I don't think we should mention the name of that pollster without not get into various legal issues. I, I, I find it hard to take seriously, to be honest. Well, it is a pollster who has had some sort of a, a, a kinship or an affiliation with Netanyahu in the past, and that's why we're all a little bit skeptical of him. And it's a pollster who's notoriously opaque about his uh, polling about his methodology. Methods. Having said that, the same pollster, and we might as well say his name, Shlomo Filber, has sometimes been quite accurate in the past in terms of the exit polls or the polls just before the election, so we can't really discount them entirely. The other dynamic is that the Arab parties are clearly suffering. Since the joint list broke up, in the past, up until now, they were getting an average of 10 seats together with Ra'am and the remainder of the joint list. Since they broke up into two distinct, well, three lists, Ra'am and uh, separately Balad, and then, of course, Hadash and Ta'al, now they are all averaging together eight seats. We'll see if that dynamic continues. Balad has not been crossing the threshold. And to that end, we have a great guest to join us this week. And we are so happy to have with us Professor Amal Jamal. He's a professor at the Political Science Department at Tel Aviv University, my very own alma mater. He has written extensively about Arab politics and society in Israel and Palestine. Amal, thank you so much for joining us today. For inviting me. It's our pleasure. Let me ask you the first thing that is on everybody's mind these days, and it seems everybody is talking about it. Turnout potential among the Arab community in Israel. What do you think is the most important factor that will determine whether the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel go out and vote? Well, there's a great disappointment among uh, um, you know, Palestinian citizens uh, uh, regarding the inability of the political parties to unite and go uh, in a united front the next elections. Having uh, said that, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, this uh, factor is the only one that will determine uh, the amount of people going to vote. I think the uh, political circumstances, the broader political circumstances, especially uh, you know, opening prospects for a better future uh, for the Palestinian Palestinians in general and Palestinians in particular, and the ability of the political parties to uh, uh, you know run their political campaigns in a, a civilized manner, uh, putting forward the most pressing needs of the political community uh, of the Palestinian political community up front, 
that will determine whether they will trust the parties and see possible uh, prospects to influence the political process and uh, uh, impact decision-making uh, or not. This will be, I think, the main factor determining to go out. You said two things. You said, on the one hand, they want to vote based on who they trust to deal with the problems of the Palestinian citizens here. And then you also said that it will be a matter of who they think will have an influence on decision-making. And that sort of pits the question of issues versus the question of what Angel has argued in his excellent article earlier this week is the main consideration, which is whether the parties will take an integrationist line and and advocate joining the Israeli governing coalition or even the cabinet itself. Which is the most important factor, or do they go together? I think they go together. Uh, I think... Uh... Uh, strategically, when we look at you know political political uh, Palestinian political elite in Israel, I think they have determined already that they will would like to join the coalition, whether from inside or the outside. Uh, they want to be part of the political game. They want to have the most impact they can have on decision making and especially the allocation of resources and uh, foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians in particular. Uh, I think this is determined. Uh, therefore. Uh, the government that will uh, allow such political force to be translated into uh, efficacy, political efficacy, I think will be the main factor influencing the, their, their determination to go out or not. Things uh, that we're seeing now in the polling, and I know the polling of the Arab-Israeli community may not always be as accurate uh, or as well-researched as we'd like it to be, is that we're seeing... Just what you just what you mentioned now, we're seeing around roughly two thirds of Israel of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel saying we want our representatives to be part of the government, but we're seeing a very similar proportion, around sixty percent, saying we're not going to plan and vote. So that kind of looks like a contradiction. Can you kind of explain how these two feelings come together into play? They are disappointed. They mean actually that the way the political elite is behaving does not translate their uh, aspiration to have an impact and be part of the decision-making in Israel. Uh, of course, the responsibility lies not only uh, on, on the political, uh, the Palestinian political lead, but also the willingness of Zionist parties to have them as partners. But from the point of view of the uh, Palestinian voters, uh, their expectation is not being translated in, into a clear political strategy of the political elite to show them and speak to them uh, honestly about how they can translate their participation into political efficacy and political participation. So, so we're speaking now just a few days after what was the joint list. It's by now the late or the joint list no longer exists. There is no joint list. And you, know, you speak about the political elite of this community. So is the fact that the journalist no longer exists, is that a failure of the political elite to, to, to stick together? Or was it, in a way, an artificial uh, political block that we, co we couldn't really have expected to survive for very long? Well, let me clarify two points here. One is that uh, the joint list was only a mechanism uh, that should not be worshipped, and the public is fully aware that it's a it was a technical block in order to advance or promote their ability to influence the political process in Israel, uh, and that the political elite 
should look for uh, uh, for any other alternative possible in order to uh, maintain their political impact. Uh, and the second point is that the joint lit is not a romantic, I mean, unification or being running together is not a romantic issue. Uh, it's not a sentimental issue. I think it's a very rational expectation that the political elite uh, prioritizes what the public expects them to uh, do, and that is uh, changing the uh, fundamentally changing the policy of the government towards the Palestinian minority. And this is only possible through working together uh, and and having the most impact possible uh, through having uh, as many MKs as possible in the Knesset. Well, I mean, I think that raises the contradiction that. It- it builds on what Angela asked before. I've heard many Palestinian citizens say they're disappointed the joint list broke up because now they won't have enough power. And we see the surveys are giving the lists altogether now eight seats. And they, they say things to, like, you know, oh, look, in the past we had 13, even 15 seats. But of course, the reason why the numbers are going down is because the disappointment in the breakup seems to be leading to lower turnout. So that's another element of the contradiction. I'm not sure if it's a new question. But do you think that there is something that one of the parties will be offering the voters that will really rally them. And like again, I feel like we're circling around the same issues. Is it a matter of policy? Like you said, will somebody be able to offer the voters something that they want to advance if they were involved in a new government? Is it a matter of even higher funds and budgets being invested into the Arab community, or is it going to be a matter of putting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or conflict resolution back on the agenda? Which of those things should we expect to hear as, as these separate parties compete? Well, first of all, let's uh, uh, you know clarify that around fifty percent or forty-five percent are going to vote anyway. Uh, that's we know from, from polls. You think it's going to reach fifty? That's optimistic. Most polls are showing well, forty maybe, to forty-five. Maybe, maybe it could be. I mean, last time it was forty-four point five. It may uh, uh, go down a little bit to 42, 41, or it may go up to uh, 48, 50. Uh, and, uh, the competition between the parties may raise the willingness to go out, uh, especially that each one of them, each one of these parties have, uh, you know, it's a, it's a survival issue, and therefore they, they're going to be uh, putting uh, most uh, resources and energy possible in order to mobilize people to go out. So it may go up. I think... The, the issue is, what about the, the rest? I mean, what about the 15, 20% that are going to remain home? And they are to determine, actually, the impact that the political, the, the Arab political parties have on the, in the, Israeli, uh, on the Israeli agenda in general. Uh, whether we are talking about, uh, you know, the Palestinian issue, the peace process, or, uh, you know, policies towards the Palestinian citizens. And I don't think they're, and this is the second point here, I don't think that people differentiate between the two. I think people are fully aware that the policies towards them as citizens uh, is determined by the fact that they are Palestinians. And the same policy uh, uh, towards their, uh, uh, you know, brethren in in the West Bank and Gaza is based on the fact that they are Palestinians, that there is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict manifested or translated in different Israeli policies according to the territorial affiliation. And therefore, they want to have an impact in order to change policy in general whether we are talking about towards Palestinians in the occupied territories or Palestinian citizens. The issue is that they want the most impact possible. I'm speaking about the citizens, uh, the Palestinian citizens. And the only way to do it is actually through uniting forces between the Arab parties and uh, not uh, not uh, enabling 
the fragmentation policy, uh, uh, you know, promoted by the Israeli uh, government uh, historically to uh, have an impact on uh, their uh, priorities. I think here we are talking about, you know, a, a rational, a co collective rationality that is translated into a political expectation uh, that is not being met by the political elite. And that's why the public is, or part of the public is fully disappointed. Can we expect to see perhaps um, in the not too distant future a different breakdown of the party? I mean, if we have the parties now, they're more or less still going according to various s units or communities within the Arab Israeli or the Palestinian sector where we have religious values and you know, which are more represented by Ram and we have more secular values being represented by Hadash and, and the various uh, affiliations of, of Tal and Balad as well. Will that, can we expect that to be replaced by parties who are mainly differentiated by their willingness to be part of, of an Israeli government coalition? So if Ram is, is a party which says we are prepared to join any coalition, so that's people of that view will be voting for them, and perhaps Hadashtal, who are saying, well, we're, we're a bit more ambivalent, we won't necessarily join every every coalition, then people will vote for them according to that. And then there'll be those who are saying, we don't want to be in any coalition, they'll vote for, for Balad. I mean, is that a kind of breakdown that we may start to see in a few election cycles? Can I just add to that question? Is that going to be a more important breakdown than things like a more conservative, religious, or universalist, liberalist outlook? Well, they are interconnected. I think uh, reducing uh, understanding the political process in the Palestinian community based on whether join the government or not, being part of the coalition or not, is, I think, is not a, a, a good reading of the motivations behind uh, political participation. I think uh, uh, people are uh, are voting for uh, Ram, for instance, uh, not only because they are saying they are willing to join any coalition, but because they, uh, you know, they, they, their voters. They, there is a sociology behind voting patterns, and the voters of Ram are more conservative, more religious, and uh, the periphery of the. Um, Arab towns and, and villages. They are lower. They have lower income. Uh, so there's a social, socio-economic uh, uh, factor here. And when we look at people voting for, um, you know, Hadash uh, historically, uh, whether within the joint list or without the joint list, they are more liberal. They're more open, more secular, more better educated. Have uh, you know, uh, uh, upper middle class and so on. So I think I think uh, this factor. Is not going to disappear, and therefore, you know, when we look at uh, how people vote and whether they vote or not, I think we have to look at the combination of the sociological uh, uh, affiliation as well as the willingness to uh, play uh, based on the rule of the game uh, within the Israeli uh, parliament. I mean, the, the rising middle class in the Palestinian minority in Israel is pressing for or pushing for more dynamism, more openness, more uh, uh, experimentalism uh, in order to promote its impact on what's going on. And uh, uh, this middle class is divided into, uh, uh, into conservatives and, and liberals. Uh, and therefore, we are not going to see this disappearing in the next, uh, uh, in the short future, at least. 
Um, so that's why people, you know, the political discourse is focusing on whether to join the government or not, uh, to be part of the coalition or not. It's not the, it's not actually how people uh, uh, calculate their political behavior and whether we, the, the, which party to support uh, uh, and and what kind of political affiliation they have. I think it's much much deeper than that. Uh, the issue is, I think, and this is important to bring in, into the uh, analysis, is the fact that Ballad, for instance, representing the mostly the nationalist voice um, within the Palestinian community is may disappear this time, which means that part of the people who traditionally belong uh, or were affiliated with Balad will have to find their way within the two camps, uh, Hadash on the one hand and Ram on the other hand. And I think if if this does not uh, does not play, take place in the coming elections. November 2022, uh, I think it, they will have to find their way uh, uh, in, in the near future, and they will have a great impact on how how uh, the political organization of the community will will develop. All they have to do is wait for the sixth election. Angel, you have something to say. To um, another last question. There's There's been a trend, which is already, I think, going on for about 20 years already. If in the past back in the previous century, there was a significant proportion of Arab-Israeli voters voting for non-Arab or for Jewish parties. That proportion has shrunk steadily, though we see every so often, like with Likud in the last election, uh, a Jewish party trying to make a play for Arab votes. Do you see that uh, that trend changing? Do you see perhaps more uh, Arab-Israeli voters voting for Jewish parties, or that's not something that, you, that, you can pre- that we can predict in, in the near future? Well, you know, predictions in politics are impossible. But uh, I think uh, when we look at the last 20, 25 years, even 30 years, uh, there have been always about 15 to 18 percent of uh, uh, Palestinian Arabs in Israel voting for Zionist parties. And the the distribution, you know, varies according to uh, different uh, election cycles. Yeah, and actually, it can be, can, can be quite erratic the distribution of parties among the Zionist parties. Sometimes it goes to Likud, sometimes it goes to Labour. I mean, we we have to differentiate here between people who are you know believe in uh, the Zionist left to represent them much better than than Arab parties, and therefore they vote based on ideological uh, basis. And there are those who are more opportunistic and vote based on, you know, to, to parties that usually are in the coalition and run the interior ministry or run, uh, you know, the, the welfare ministry and allocate resources to the uh, uh, um, local councils and municipalities in the, in the community. So um, this will not change, I think. And therefore, it also means uh, that it's not going to grow uh, rapidly or change radically patterns of behavior in the future. Actually, uh, even when, when we hear voices, you know, asking to vote for uh, or supporting uh, the Likud, which is a very nationalist Zionist party, I think it's only because they are uh, opportunistically, uh, uh, opportunistically connected to the fact that the Likud has been, you know, was in power for a long period of time and they are connected to people you know, uh, we, we call it uh, we call it in the literature, you know, uh, uh, clientel accountability, uh, that people have clientel uh, connections with Zionist parties here and there and Zionist leaders here and there and vote accordingly. But this is a, in the margins. 
I think that most most Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel prefer to vote for Arab party, but they want them to behave differently, to be open to, uh, 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 to, to uh, 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 more rational thinking and creative uh, strategic thinking, seizing opportunities and trying to have an impact, uh, uh, you know, in, increase uh, in order to, you know, be able to change the internal policy towards the Palestinian question in general and the Palestinians in particular. I think this is the expectation. And as long as the political elite in the Palestinian community does not uh, meet this expectation, I think that the, the trust in political parties and politicians will dwindle. Uh, and this will have a crucial impact on, I think, the entire Israeli uh, political system. Last comment in this regard. I mean, when, I mean, the fact that we are talking about the Palestinians, citizens of Israel, as a very strong community influencing, actually determining the future of Israel in general. This is, this was, I mean, this is unexpected. Uh, nobody could have uh, uh, expected this, uh, uh, you know, uh, reality uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And I think the Palestinians are looking for uh, the best way to uh, uh, exploit this reality, this political uh, structure, the split between the center-right and center-left in, in the Jewish community in order to promote their interests. And the way is not, you know, I think I think they, they have not found the way yet. And they, uh, uh, they may miss an opportunity that uh, could disappear in, in the near future. Well, I think this is also, I agree with you, it's one of the most interesting points about this election, that all eyes in the Jewish community, both on the right and specifically in the anti-Bibi bloc, are on the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, figuring out how many of them are going to vote and who they're going to vote for and whether it will change the electoral dynamics. So that is, in a way, this community is becoming the star of the election so far. Yeah, Dalia, in, in this regard, maybe a comment uh, quickly. I, I think... Uh, uh, we we need to hear uh, you know political leaders in the center left speaking to this community, and and uh, and they don't dare because of the delegitimation process taking place from the right wing, uh, especially Netanyahu. I think if Lapid or Gantz or uh, Eisenkot or uh, Saar and so on and so on speak to the community and promise something, this could raise the level of voting or participation and could have a great impact on the future. But it's not taking place, and I think this is, this is unfortunate. Well, we still have six and a half weeks to go. Maybe maybe we, we can be hopeful. Maybe it will uh, take place. Thank you so much, Professor Jamal, for your time. It's really fascinating insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just before we wrap another episode of Election Overdose, it's time for our Rosh Hashanah party. Take it away, Dalia. Well, we like to talk about esoteric lost moments in Israeli history, but I'm going to combine my two favorite topics of this episode. One is, of course, a deep dive into Palestinian citizens of Israel and their voting history. And the other is my other favorite topic of this show, which is which parties have been disqualified over the years. So when was the first party that was disqualified in Israel, Anshel? Something in the 50s, oh, that name a little bit escapes early. me. It was 1965, and it was a socialist party that was made up largely of people who had been part of the movement of Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel called Al-Ard, which Al-Ard, means, of course, Al-Ard. the land. And this Haaretz. was a movement that... Uh, so, some, some people <laughs> like to call Haaretz Al-Ard as well. Some people do, but these particular people were a movement that had developed when the Arab citizens were still under martial law. They lived under military government until 1966. And 
members of that movement were outlawed. The movement itself was outlawed in various forms at several points. And that in 1965, when the Socialist Party was established with many of the former members, the challenge took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided that because those members had been part of an illegal organization, they could be banned even though there was nothing in Israel's electoral law explicitly allowing a ban of parties. That only came later in 1985 when... It was a reaction to Kahana. It was a reaction to Kahana when, during 1984 elections, uh, parties challenged Kahana's legitimacy to run, and the Supreme Court said we have to allow him to run because we don't have a law. We do have the precedent of having banned those earlier members of Al-Ard, but we don't have a law that explicitly allows us to ban a party for its politics. There, Kahana got into Knesset. Israel changed its electoral law, and now we have the current laws that say... A party can be disqualified if it contradicts Israel's character as a Jewish and democratic state, if it incites to racism, or after an amendment in 2003, if it supports terrorism. But we're not banning anybody, and thus ends our final election overdose episode for Hebrew year 5782, a rare year in which Israel didn't hold an election. What does 5783 hold in store? At least one election, that's for sure, perhaps two, even three, who knows? All we know is that we'll be back here with you to try and make some sense of it all in the new year. And of course, you'll be able to find all the most up-to-date election news and the best comment and analysis on Haaretz.com. I'm Andrew Pfeffer. With me was Dalia Shendin and our producer here at Haaretz. Headquarters in Tel Aviv was Shani Aviram. Have a great Rosh Hashanah and the sweetest of New Year's. Shana Tova. 